last week we finished up, I think it was about number 57, lesson number 57, which was on the unpardonable sin. And you had a homework question on that, and I hope all that was resolved, and everybody understands what the unpardonable sin is, and that the only way it can be committed in this day and age is by rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior up to your dying moment. That's the only way you can commit the unpardonable sin, and there is a lot of confusion about that. Um, out in the world a lot of people think that committing suicide is the unpardonable sin or you know they have all kinds of ideas about what it is but the only thing it is is you know not asking for pardon from a God who wants to pardon you who gave his son so that you might be pardoned of your sin and to reject that right till the moment you pass into eternity so the uh, response the only response that the religious leaders had to the Lord's two parables um, which uh, refuted their accusation of him. You remember they had accused him of doing his works in the power of Beelzebub or the prince of devils, another name for Satan. The only reaction or response that they had to those two parables which showed how illogical this accusation was and those two parables were the parable of the divided kingdom that Satan would not be divided against himself or his kingdom would fall. Obviously, he was not performing his exorcisms in the power of Satan, or he would be, Satan would be casting out Satan, and his kingdom wouldn't stand. And then he gave the parable of subduing the strong man, which basically taught the same thing, that their accusation was totally illogical. And also their only response to his warning, serious warning, about the uh, unpardonable sin was to ask him for a sign. Can you imagine that? Here again, they're asking him for a sign. They had completely shut their eyes and their hearts and their minds willfully to the many, many wonderful works that he had been performing. The truth of the matter was that there had been more than sufficient evidence to convince them of who he was and that he was doing his works in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in Satan. Uh, in the power of Satan but the truth of the matter was that they did not want to be convinced he told them then in response to their request for a sign that it was an evil and what kind of a generation right an evil and adulterous generation which seeks for a sign that was in Matthew 12:39, right after their official declaration of who he was that he was working in the power of Satan he told them that an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign as Christians we should believe by faith we shouldn't always say show me and then I'll believe because that's not God's way of doing things we believe first faith comes first and then he will show us and even the truth is that even if he had given them another sign he knew that they still would not have believed because they were willfully unbelieving but he did tell them that there yet would be one final sign and that would be the sign of Jonah the prophet but actually by the time that they would receive that sign the uh, nation of Israel would already have committed the unpardonable sin because the sign of Jonah the prophet was the sign of his death and resurrection he said as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights so would the son of man um, spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth well by the time they would receive that sign after his death and then his resurrection three days later they would have already committed the unpardonable sin because they would have rejected the witness of God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit as to who he was and they would have crucified him so really he gave them no more signs this was a sign which would be too late, but it's a sign which tells you and I who he is, confirms to us who he was. And this was for the nation. The nation committed the unpardonable sin, but always his invitation was open to individuals. Well, with his increased unpopularity and growing misunderstanding, as well as the official rejection from the religious hierarchy of the nation, the Lord needed to explain some very important matters to his disciples, to his 12 men, who were probably at this time wondering what would happen to the promise of the kingdom if their own people rejected the king. They've already seen him rejected in Jerusalem where the religious leaders were furious with him and wanted to kill him. They've seen him rejected for the most part up in Galilee, and now they've just witnessed and heard the official 
declaration from the uh, nation's representatives, this delegation of Jewish leaders who had come up to Galilee and said that he was doing his power in the, his miracles in the power of Satan. So the disciples were wondering what would happen to the promise of the coming kingdom. Would God not fulfill his promises regarding the messianic kingdom on earth, all the promises which he had made throughout the Old Testament? Well, the answer to those questions was what forms the primary thrust of the Lord's teaching, which is given to us in Matthew chapter 13, a very important chapter. Through a series of parables, the Lord told his men that the literal millennial, also called messianic, or 1,000-year kingdom on earth, would have to be postponed until a time when Israel would believe in and receive Jesus Christ as their King and Savior and Lord. However, although the earthly literal kingdom promised throughout the Old Testament would be postponed, Jesus taught about a mystery kingdom which would be established during the interval of time. And this would be the mystery kingdom. A mystery is something which was not revealed to the Old Testament writers was not revealed until the New Testament. This would be a mystery kingdom or an interval kingdom. It would be a spiritual kingdom, which would not be visible because it would exist where? Within the hearts of believers. So when asked in Luke 17, verses 20 to 21, when this kingdom would come, remember what the Lord had said? He said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. It's not something you can visibly see like you will be able to see the literal 1,000-year kingdom. He said, neither shall they say, lo, here, or lo, there. You know, there it is. There's the kingdom. But he said, behold, the kingdom of God is within you. He's describing there the interval or mystery kingdom. And this new form of the kingdom would exist from the time of the Lord's rejection on the cross all the way to um, the time of his return, to the time of the second coming of Christ. So you can see there on that chart, if you can read that, that it is a time which is actually longer than the church age. It includes, definitely includes the church age in which you and I live, but it is longer because it went from his cross to his second coming. Now, the first feature of this new kingdom, this new form of the kingdom, is that it would be characterized by believers sowing forth the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is what we call the gospel. Believers would be sowing forth the gospel. And this is what we discussed back in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, verses 3 to 9. The disciples here at this point in the Lord's ministry were learning that their primary responsibility during the course of this inter-advent stage of the kingdom was to sow the seed of God's word. That's what our responsibility is today because we live in this inter-advent kingdom stage. Our responsibility is to sow the seed of God's word into human hearts and those human hearts remember in that parable were symbolized by four different soil types. And so that the disciples and so that you and I would not get, you know, real discouraged or be overwhelmed with dismay and quit from the responses that they saw, that they found, and that you and I encounter, the Lord warned them in this parable. He warned them ahead of time that three out of the four soil types or the heart conditions of men would reject that seed, right? They would not, the seed would not take root and grow. They would respond negatively to the gospel invitation to enter into the kingdom of heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. So you and I should not be discouraged when we go out there and we sow the seed of the gospel and find that three out of four people will reject it. We should praise the Lord for the one-fourth that do accept it and that seed takes root and they grow and they, they become a true Christian and a, a disciple in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the parable of the wheat and the tares... The Lord, again using the illustration of a sower planting seeds, taught that there would be a major counter-sowing by who? Who would do that major counter-sowing? Satan, right. 
and this would infiltrate the word world with the contaminating he would infiltrate the world with the contaminating influence of his wicked emissaries and these emissaries were not called wheat they were called what tares false believers professing believers our churches today are full of wheat true believers and tares it's just part of the characteristic of this inter-advent age that the church would be full of both you have those possessing christians who possess the holy spirit and those professing only who just profess to believe but aren't really genuine they don't really have a born-again relationship with the lord jesus christ so this mystery kingdom age would be a time when the righteous wheat would grow side by side with the unrighteous tares and this was exemplified even among the lord's own apostles right because even among those good men there was a tear and we know that his name was judas iscariot then in the parable of the mustard seed we learned that the new form of the kingdom would have a very very small beginning again i can't talk this morning that it would be as small as a tiny little mustard seed but and we know it started with only 12 men and one of them was a tear so it did have a very small beginning it started with 11 men but that it would eventually grow into a great big huge tree that it would have um, great external influence and we know that definitely the influence of those 11 men turned the world upside down and that's the reason you and i are here this morning and the other parables of matthew chapter 13 taught further great truths which i don't have the time to get into every one of them this morning but different truths about this intermediate stage of god's kingdom on earth and for further information on that fascinating chapter you could get our uh we have a mini album i think it consists of three tapes called the mystery kingdom parables it was lessons number 58 to 60 and they're well worth your time studying but the most sobering parable of all was the final one which it was called the parable of the final net and in that parable christ compared the kingdom of heaven to a drag net which is cast out into the sea to catch what fish right and then when the fishermen pull in the net and find a great catch they take that catch to the shore and once at shore they immediately will separate the good fish from the bad fish the good fish this parable t tells us are collected and put into containers while the bad fish are thrown away they're just cast away now the lord used this parable to serve as a symbolic illustration of the judgment which will occur at the end of this new mystery form of the kingdom because jesus wanted to emphasize to his men and to all future followers the seriousness of their task to repeatedly warn people against the danger of spending eternity apart from a loving living holy god because of that jesus spent a great deal of his teaching time warning people about the horrors of hell they say he sp spoke more about hell than he did about heaven that's true if you go through the gospels and see how much time he spoke about hell he did not want people to go to hell it's not his desire that any man should what should perish that's why he willingly came to this earth to give his life for men because he did not he does not take delight in the death of the wicked no pleasure in the death of the wicked as it tells us in ezekiel 18:23, and that's why he himself came here to this earth he didn't have to leave the bliss of heaven he came because he didn't want men to spend eternity apart from him he wanted all men to be in eternal fellowship with him and to have a way to escape these horrible horrors and agonies of hell which was you know hell was not originally created for man at all was it hell was created for the devil who rebelled against god and for the one-third of the angels who fell with the devil but people when they in their willful rebellion decide and we have a choice and when they willfully choose to follow the lies and the deceits of satan then they are going to reap his same reward so the bad fish of his parable are those who refuse to ask him for the forgiveness that he wants to give them 
They are those who see no need, just like last week when we talked about Simon the Pharisee. They see no need for forgiveness. They see no need for salvation because they already think of themselves as righteous. They already think that they're going to get to heaven because of their good nature and their good works. The good fish, however, are those who, like the woman at the well, we also talked about last week, and the woman who washed the Lord's feet, you know, with her tears and her hair and her kisses. They are those, the good fish, are those who realize the greatness of their debt because of their sin. And when invited by the Lord Jesus Christ to come unto him and drink of the water of life, which he alone can offer, and discover, when they discover that his yoke is indeed light, and his burden, her easy, and his burden is light, and that his rest, remember we talked about spiritual rest, that his rest is lovely, then they are the ones who respond by accepting his offer. And that's what it, all it takes is to just freely accept it. It's a totally free gift. Come unto me. That's all you have to do is come unto him. And they will not be cast away as the bad fish or burned as the tares, but they will be kept in safety and heavenly bliss for all of eternity with the wonderful Redeemer, whose shed blood and sacrificial death made their salvation possible. So we ask the question, will you be barned or burned? The choice is yours. Will you be kept or cast? Only you can make that decision. Then following the giving of the mystery kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13, the Lord and his men took a little voyage. You remember this voyage across the Sea of Galilee, at which time they encountered a terrible and sudden storm. And through that experience and the accompanying miracle in which the Lord demonstrated even his authority over the winds and the waves just by standing up in the boat and saying, what? Peace be still. Through that miracle, he taught the disciples how to face life without fear. Faith in him is what gives us the victory in the voyage of life that we all are on. Right now, we're on a voyage through life, just like across the stormy sea. And there are going to be sudden storms that come up in our life, aren't there? Earth has no storm which heaven cannot heal. That's the lesson we learned in that in that study i think it was tape number 61 and we do have also a mini album of two tapes on handling life's storms because as you know there were two storms on the sea of galilee and that's a good little album maybe to get somebody who is encountering a storm what we learned basically was that true safety is not the absence of the storm because there will always be storms that's just the way life is going to be on a planet which is being ruled by Satan. There will always be, and sin, there will always be storms. True safety is not in the absence of the storm. True safety is in the presence of the Savior through the storm. Then immediately after they reached, after the storm, they reached the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They reached the shore of Gadara. Remember this? Who did they immediately meet? When they got to, I mean, the storm was bad enough. Then they got to the other side, and here came, here came this wild man. Actually, there were two of them, but the one that the scripture focuses on is known as the demoniac of Gadara. And, I mean, the disciples were afraid, first of all, of the storm. Then they were afraid of Jesus, who stood up and stilled it instantly. And now here comes this, these crazy men, and they probably were scared to death of this guy, too. We call him the crude, rude dude in the nude. <laughs> The demoniac of Gadara. You like that? <laughs> and then when the Lord commanded the legion, he had a legion of unclean spirits within him to leave and enter into, remember, a nearby herd of pigs. What happened to the people of Gadara? They were not happy that the, the Lord Jesus had tamed this untamable man. They were upset, and they begged him to leave because he had done damage to their prophets. But, you know, we talked about this when we studied it. These people were um, the ancestors of the tribe of Gad. 
you know, the tribe, the Jewish tribe of Gad, that's where the name Gadara came from. These were uh, most likely Jewish people. Jewish people had no business raising pigs, but what they were doing was raising pigs and selling them to the Romans for profit. So some people really got upset with Jesus, you know, if some people today would say, well, that was terrible, you know, because he killed all those pigs. But they were being punished because they were strictly breaking Mosaic law in raising pigs and selling them for profit. You know, animals won't tolerate possession. Human beings are the only ones who will tolerate satanic, uh, demonic possession. But animals won't tolerate it. You put a demon in an animal and it'll go kill itself because it would rather be dead than have that demon live in it. And that's what those pigs did. They jumped off that, the cliff there and fell into the sea. But the people of Gadara were furious because the Lord had hurt their pocketbooks. He's always affecting people where they get angry the most, right? In their pocketbooks, their wallets. So rather than falling on their faces before this one in worship, who, this one who had such authority over Satan's realm that he truly must be the Messiah. Rather than doing that, they begged him to leave their land. Pigs were more important to them than the Savior. Isn't that sad? You know, I had a, a, a real live illustration of this once. You know, we, we can all sit here and say, well, pigs certainly aren't more important to me. <laughs> but... Other things can be more important. You know, we can have other priorities. But I actually had a lady once that I invited to a Bible study. Uh, wasn't this Bible study. It was one I was attending, Bible Study Fellowship in Fayetteville. And I asked her to go. And you know the excuse that she gave me? She said, no, I have to feed my pigs. So I always think of her. I thought, well, why can't you feed your pigs before or after the Bible study? I mean, but that was her excuse. And every time I read this story, I think of that woman and her excuse. And we've heard a lot of excuses, but I think that beats all of them that I've ever heard. So they worshiped mammon instead of God. And Jesus left the shore because, you know, the Lord Jesus is a gentleman, and he will never stay where he is not wanted. That's why he stands at the outside of the door and knocks, right? He has to be invited to enter. He will not barge his way in. He never forces himself upon anyone because he wants your invitation to be real. He wants your love to be real. He doesn't want us to be walking robots that love him because he makes us. He forces us. He must be invited to stay, and then he will. So upon his return, then, to the shores of Capernaum, a woman who had suffered with an issue of blood for 18 long years was instantly healed when she, in faith, touched just the hem of his garment. Remember, he was on his way to Jairus's house because Jairus had come to him and said, come heal my daughter, she's dying, my little 12-year-old daughter. Um, but on the way, this woman, there was a big crowd around the Lord. She said, if I could just touch him, I know I'll be healed. And when she touched, reached forward and touched the hem of his garment, he felt the power going out of him and she was instantly healed. And then it was Jairus' daughter, the little 12-year-old girl, who became the Lord's second person whom he had raised from the dead. First was the widow's son of Nain, and now he raised this little girl, demonstrating again to the people his absolute power and authority over all realms of life, even death. He was proving to the, proving to the people that he was not only their long-awaited Messiah, but he was the God of all creation, the giver of life himself. And then he continued to perform miracles. He healed, as a matter of fact, two blind men who were waiting for him when he left Jairus' home. And remember those two blind men had called out to him, have mercy on us, son of David, which son of David was a messianic title. They believed in him. They believed that he was the Messiah. And he turned around and he healed them not only physically, but he healed them spiritually because of their belief in him. And then he gave his hometown of Nazareth, even after they had tried to push him off the cliff that first visit. But again, he was thoroughly rejected by his hometown people. And because of their unbelief, he was not able to do many mighty works there as he had been in other places. He only healed a few sick people. 
And it was at that time that the Lord told his men that a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And then in lessons 65 through 67, we discussed in detail the Lord's ordination sermon, which is found, if you want to read that, it's found in Matthew 10. And it contains there the Lord's commissioning speech to his apostles as he sent them out in pairs, two by two, on their first mission venture without him. He gave them in that sermon a lot of practical advice and told them that they would be empowered to perform all kinds of miracles in order to validate their message. And if you will read that sermon, you'll find out he even gave them power to raise the dead. So very possibly the apostles raised some people from the dead. We don't have that specifically recorded to us, but he did give them that, that power at that time. He also warned them in that ordination sermon of the rejection and danger which would be theirs, um, telling them that they would be as sheep in the midst of wolves so that they were to be as wise as what? As wise as serpents and as gentle as doves, right? And that goes for you and I, too. We need to be aware of the danger and the people that would reject us and the possible persecution, so we should be as wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves. In other words, truth in love. That's always the key blend. If you have too much truth, you may not be accept. I mean, not too. you can't have too much truth, but if you have truth without love, people will reject your message because if they see no love, they won't be drawn to the Savior. And the other thing, you can have too much love and not enough truth. And the truth is what makes men free. So you have to have that perfect blend of truth and love. Then sometime after their return from that first mission trip, the Lord's disciples witnessed his first miraculous feeding of, the fi of some 5,000 plus people. We, it, the scripture tells us there were 5,000 men, and we know that there were also women and children, so there were probably at least 15,000 people who he fed with merely uh, a, a lad's small lunch of two fish and five barley loaves of bread. And that was the only specific miracle besides the resurrection this is the only specific miracle which is mentioned in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The significance of the symbolic meaning of that miracle was then given in the Lord's discourse, which followed it. He never just did a miracle for the sake of doing a miracle and to, you know, get people excited about thrills and chills. He, gave, he performed his miracles to demonstrate something. First of all, he fed the people, and then he taught the people. He fed them with the bread of life, and then he taught them the bread of life sermon. That is found in John chapter 6. We also have a mini cassette album of two tapes which contains that sermon. It is a deeply theological sermon, but it's one which is very important. It's a sermon which told the people who had wanted to crown him king right there on the spot after he had fed them miraculously, he told the people that he was the true bread of life who came down from heaven in order to give life to the world. The manna in the wilderness back in Moses' day was a, was a type, was a picture, a prophetic type of him. He was the true manna who came down from heaven. The manna which they had received day by day in the wilderness could only keep them physically, and it could only keep them one day at a time. Every day they'd have to get up and eat some more. But he, spiritually speaking, was a bread of life who could keep them eternally, preserve their lives eternally, spiritually. He said that the bread he would give was his what? His flesh which he would willingly give for the life of the world. And then he went on to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his, what, blood, which, of course, was allegorical or metaphorical language to draw a comparison between the physical process of digestion to the spiritual truth of believing in and receiving him as personal savior. 
food, such as bread, is taken into the body through our mouths, right? And then it's digested in our stomachs, and then it's assimilated all throughout our body so that it becomes a part of the one who ate it. Likewise, Jesus was teaching that those who desire to receive the gift of eternal life must identify with him and must appropriate him into their spiritual being. So in essence, he was saying to the people, just as yesterday, and it was the day before that he had done the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, just as yesterday you took the bread I miraculously cre created into your physical bodies, so must you receive me the true bread of life within your innermost being, within your heart, within your will, within your mind, so that I can give you, instead of just physical life like that bread, I can give you eternal life. The bread maintained your physical life, but I can maintain forever your spiritual life. Well, unfortunately, the people took his message literally, didn't they? And because of that, they were offended and the Greek word used there was scandalizo. They were scandalized by what he said because they were, they were thinking that he was teaching some type of a new pagan religion that involved cannibalism, eating his flesh and drinking blood, which of course they knew was definitely against the Mosaic law. They were forbidden to drink blood or even eat meat, which still had blood in it. And furthermore, even after he explained to them, and we saw that in um, John 6, verse 63, that he was not speaking literally, that he was speaking figuratively, uh, he said, the flesh profiteth nothing. I'm not talking about eating my flesh physically. I'm speaking metaphorically. But even after he explained the vast majority of the people who had been following him, it said in John 6, verse 66, and I always think of that verse as 666, these were men following Satan because they turned away from the Lord. It says the people departed and they walked no more with him. Very, very sad text. He had not been talking to them like the king who they wanted, the king who would help them overthrow Roman oppression. When he had fed the 5,000, they wanted to crown him king, but not king over their, lives, their hearts. They wanted to crown him king because they were sick and tired of being under the iron arm of Roman oppression. They wanted a king who would lead them in a revolution and overthrow Rome. And that was the type of Messiah they were seeking, but that was not the type of Messiah he was. So it was then at that time, after these, all these other people, these other disciples turned and walked no more with him, that he turned to his own 12 disciples and asked them if they too would go away. And Simon Peter, remember, this is one time Simon Peter answered the Lord really well. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. A great statement of faith made by the Apostle Peter. There was only one mistake that Peter made in that great confession. He assumed that all 12 of the disciples believed the way that he did about the Lord, didn't he? He didn't know about Judas, but Christ himself knew about Judas because he followed the, uh, Peter's confession by saying, have I not chosen you and one of you is a devil? You know, the Lord was not surprised one bit about Judas's betrayal. It broke his heart, but he wasn't surprised about it. Here, way before it happened, he had predicted it. He predicted it again, remember, on the night of the Passover supper, the Lord's, when he initiated the Lord's Supper. He knew about Ju Judas all along. It was no surprise. As a matter of fact, he had predicted about Judas even in the writings of King David way back in the Psalms. Then in the next sequence of events, in our chronological study, the Lord traveled to the region of Tyre and Sidon where he delivered a demon 
from the Syrophoenician woman's daughter and then commended that precious woman for her great faith. Remember we talked about the fact that there were only two people in all the gospel accounts who the Lord ever commended for having great faith, and both of them were Gentiles. There was the Roman centurion whose uh, servant he healed from a distance, and this Syrophoenician woman. Very interesting that the two people commended for great faith happened to be not Jews but Gentiles. And then he traveled southeast into the area known as the region of Decapolis, which literally in Greek, Deca is the word for ten, polis is the word for cities. It means this region of ten cities. And this was an area, and here's a list of the ten cities, Gadara is one of them if you'll notice, This was an area of Palestine which had been given to the tribe of Manasseh, but was now at the time of the Lord primarily uh, occupied or populated by Gentiles. And during his Decapolis ministry, the Lord Jesus performed many miracles. Remember in his own hometown, he could perform no mighty works but here in gentile territory he performed many many miracles and he was very well received by the people and that's something to take notice of over here where all the jews lived he was not very well received but over here in the cities of decapolis oh there's one up there damascus is included and philadelphia down here so there are 10 i can't get them all up there so you can count them but uh, they were very well received and of course we can't help but speculate about the fact that the uh, demoniac of Gadara after he that crude rude dude in the nude had been healed of his demons he had gone it said out into the area of Decapolis and spread the word about Jesus Christ so now these months later when Jesus enters this area a lot of people have already heard about him and we can't help but think that that was because of that demoniac he was out there sowing the seed doing what he should be doing the Gentiles who had been in spiritual darkness for so so long um, seemed to have a a far greater appreciation for the divine light of truth when it finally came their way and that's what we keep seeing over and over again as we go through the life of Christ even though they had not had the holy scriptures as the Jews had had and even though they did not have the words of the prophets of God as the Jews had had all the way from Moses to John the Baptist and even though they did not they were not the recipients of God's covenant promises and his blessings yet neither did they have the spiritual pride which became for the Jews a major stumbling block and I think that's probably the one of the primary reasons that they were more receptive to the Lord Jesus Christ and his divine light of truth than the Jews because they didn't have that stumbling block of pride it was then during his time in Decapolis while the Lord was busy healing the many handicapped and possessed people who were brought to him that he then performed the miracle of feeding the 4,000 people and again we're told there were 4,000 men and we know that there were also women and children so this could have been as many as 12,000 people and this time this is not the same miracle which is recorded with the five fish I mean the five loaves and the two fish because this time he he fed them it was a different amount of people and it was a different amount of um, uh, bread seven loaves of bread and and a few fish is what we're told in this miracle and I think it's very very significant that the true bread of life the true manna from heaven fed miraculously not only Jews but also Gentiles and I hope you realize if you never realized it before that there were these two miraculous feedings you always hear about the feeding of the 5,000 please don't forget the feeding of the 4,000 Jesus Christ came to save Jew and Gentile he is the bread of life for the whole world and it was very significant that in the first miracle there were five loaves of bread he's the bread of life five biblically is the number the symbolic number of grace and the second miracle there were seven loaves seven you all know by now is the number biblical number for perfection 
his grace, represented by the five loaves, is perfect, represented by the seven loaves, for the salvation of all mankind. His grace is perfect. And then the Lord came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, where he predicted for the very first time, and you might want to make a note of this too, this is in Matthew 16, verses 18 to 20, for the very first time he predicted to his disciples his future church. The church had been a mystery throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets knew nothing about the building of the Lord's church. It was a mystery. And he said that against it, even the gates of hell itself would not prevail. And then we ended our third year of our study of the Lord's life by considering another prophecy which he made regarding his own upcoming death and resurrection. Just like he was not surprised about his betrayal by Judas, neither was he surprised that he was crucified and resurrected. He himself resurrected himself. So he predicted also at this time, and this is found in Matthew 16, 27, a prophecy, and this was the first time he predicted this prophecy, that he would come again. So he was giving a prophecy regarding his second coming. That was the first time he told his men that he would be coming back again. They didn't even know he was leaving. He was trying to tell them he would be leaving. Now he's telling them that he'll be coming back again. And then the last lesson that we had in our third year of study was entitled The Metamorphosis of the Messiah. Do you remember what that message was on? The Mount of Transfiguration in which we considered the fantastic sneak preview of the Lord's second coming glory, which he revealed to his three inner circle disciples, Peter, James, and John, up there on the Mount of Transfiguration when he talked to Moses and Elijah and unveiled his flesh for a moment so that his deity glory could sh shine through. And then upon his descent from the mountaintop, the Lord, remember, found the other nine disciples surrounded by a large crowd of people who were mocking them, basically, because they had attempted but had failed to cast an evil spirit out of a man's son. However, the Lord, just upon speaking to that wicked spirit, commanded it out of the boy and the young boy was restored to his right mind and it was at this point then in our study of the Lord's earthly ministry that we came to section 5 of our general outline which is entitled the private ministry of Christ and the entire last year we found of the Lord's life was primarily devoted to the 12 special men who would then carry on his work once he returned to his father in heaven so we've moved from the public ministry of Christ in section 4 to the private ministry of Christ in section 5 of our general outline. And this last year of his life was also, of course, the year of his greatest opposition, which came primarily from the religious hierarchy of Israel. It was at the very beginning of this final stage of his earthly ministry that the Lord then again prophesied to his men of his death and his resurrection. Then immediately following the Mount, Trans Mount of Transfiguration event and the healing of that demonized boy, he said to his apostles this, the Son of Man is delivered, here's the prediction, into the hands of men and they shall kill him and after that he is killed he shall rise the third day. But notice this, in the very next verse it said the disciples did not understand this saying. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it was pretty clear. I guess, of course, it's clear to me because I'm on the other end of it. But it says they did not understand this saying, and they were too afraid to ask him what it meant. I think they were afraid that they did understand it right, and that he was saying he was going to be killed by men. Um, the resurrection part, they never really seemed to grasp, but I think they were too afraid to ask because they didn't want him to die. And then on the same day, the Lord sent Peter to fetch a coin, you know, out of a fish's mouth in order to pay the temple tax. On that very same day, he gave a beautiful sermon on being children of God. And that was found in Matthew 18, verses 1 to 35, another very significant chapter. And it is this discourse which he gave. Remember, Matthew is the one who specializes in sermons. And we see that over and over and over again. And here's another case. 
It was this discourse more than any other that he gave which teaches Christians how to get along with one another. So you understand now why it's such an important chapter. And if you missed that, I do recommend that you get the cassette tapes on that because it was a very important chapter. Because I guess that's one thing we all have problems with is getting along with each other, isn't it? Not just different denominations getting along, but it, within the local church getting along. It's a sad testimony, but it's true. The event which precipitated the discourse was the disciples' question, oh, that's where I was, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's what precipitated it, because they were arguing as they argued on several occasions about who would be the greatest, remember? And they, even, John and James even sent their mother one time to Jesus to request that they would be given the two honor seats on the right hand and the left hand of, of Christ when he reigned in his kingdom. So they wanted the choice seats. Every one of them wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so they said, who will be the greatest? Well, he took a child upon his lap, and the Lord taught his men some very, very seriously needed lessons on true greatness from the divine perspective. And I don't have time here to repeat the many, many teachings of that great sermon, but you can find it in Lessons 81 to 84. Other than to tell you that he did teach that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who is like a, what? Like a child in regard to his simple trust, his simple faith, his ability to forgive. Have you ever spanked your child and two minutes later they're right back there loving you? I mean, they forgive so easily. And their humility, of course, that's, that's chief, is humility. He taught that the greatest is the servant of others and not the celebrity. And I guess there's one thing that really bothers me in our Christian world today is that so many times we focus on the celebrities, you know, getting the celebrities before us to give testimonies, the football players and the, the, the music stars and this and that. But really, who we, we need to be hearing the testimonies of those servants, the ones that you don't see, you know, the, the, the hands and the feet and the other body parts, because usually those are more godly people than the big celebrities. So we need to be servants, not celebrities. And the greatest also in the kingdom of heaven is one who is a stepping stone for further faith for others and not a stumbling block. We talked about that. And that a truly humble person is one who is willing to sacrifice so that others will not be offended. You know, we have a lot of liberties in Christ. But if you are willing to give up some of your liberties so that other people won't stumble, you are really showing that you are a humble and godly person and great in God's sight. And not doing it begrudgingly, oh, well, I know I could do this, but I won't, so they won't stumble. But doing it because you love others so much that you don't want them to stumble. And we taught about that, and this, these were critical lessons. He also taught that Christians are to be sympathetics and not scorners. And he taught, he gave a number of reasons how, or a number of ways in which Christians despise one another. And then he went on to give reasons why we should not despise one another. And in that lesson, when he was talking about why we should not despise one another, he gave the parable of the lost sheep. You know, if there was a hundred sheep and one got lost, the, the shepherd went out to find that one. And he did that in order to teach that we should care for both the strangest of believers. And there are some strange believers, aren't there? You're going to meet some. I mean, what is that expression you have, Dottie, that Christians really draw? The light draws a lot of bugs or something. My husband calls a lot of Christians porcupine Christians. <laughs> you don't want to get too close because they'll stick you. But anyway, we should care a great deal for the strangest of believers. And believe me, I'm the strangest one there is. So I'm talking about myself as well as the straying believer, you know, the backslider. We should go out of our way to get those because Christ, that is a precious soul for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died. And so we should, that's when he taught the parable of the lost sheep. That's an important parable to study and, and to apply to our own lives. Because I guess we, we tend to turn on the strange believer and the straying believer. You know, Christian, they say Christian soldiers are the only ones who, who uh, shoot at their wounded or shoot their wounded, right. 
And then the Lord ended that critical sermon by talking about the necessity of church discipline. And here's another thing that a lot of churches just avoid totally because it's, you know, something they don't want to get into because it might drive somebody away. But we need to employ church discipline in our churches. We would dispense of many of our tares probably if we did um, in the way that Christ taught. To, uh, to work out church discipline. You know, you first of all go to the one who has offended you and you take somebody with you and there's a, there's a whole process of how we should handle an offending brother or sister. Well, after giving that lesson on church discipline, Peter became curious about the number of times that a sinning brother should be forgiven. And he thought, of course, that he was being very generous if he offered to forgive someone seven times. But the Lord, of course, answered him and said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And he didn't stop there either. In other words, you should forgive forever. And he went on then to talk about the key to family unity, which is how are you going to keep the family, the body together? The key is forgiveness. We need to constantly forgive one another, realizing that we have been forgiven by our Father in heaven. And to illustrate that, and so we should forgive our brothers, to illustrate that, he gave the parable of the wicked servant. Remember the servant who had been forgiven for his enormous debt, which he could never, ever have repaid to the king, but then he went out and he refused to forgive one of his fellow servants for just a very tiny debt. And he did that to illustrate how important it is to forgive our brothers. And then in our message entitled Barriers to Commitment, which was lesson number 85, we learned what the Lord had to say about the cost of discipleship. As three men, one by one, came up to him, about uh, approached him about wanting to be his disciple. They said, Lord, I want to follow you. And to the first one, he said, well, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests to sleep in, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Well, we don't know what the man did, but we got the feeling that he decided that the cost of discipleship was a little bit too high if he had to give up the barrier of um, creature comforts, not having a place to sleep. Another man came, and um, he wanted to be a disciple, and he said, but let me first go back and bury my father. And the Lord said, well, let the dead bury their dead. That man's father hadn't even died yet. He didn't want to give up past relationships or future actually it was future money wealth that he would inherit from his father and then the third one came and he said well let me first of all go back and say goodbye to my family he's the one who didn't want to give up past relationships because the lord knew if he went back to say goodbye to his family they'd talk him out of even following the lord in the first place so he said um he who has put his hand at the plow shouldn't look back because he will forfeit the kingdom if he does and we learned there about the barriers to commitment, about being a disciple, that we should seriously consider the cost. Salvation is free. Never mistake that. Salvation is not by works. There's nothing we can do to pay for it. It is totally free. But discipleship is a different matter. Discipleship is costly. And so if you're going to be a true learner of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to consider the cost. And I think all of you are disciples because you wouldn't be here giving of your own time and during the week giving of your time to be in the Word of God so that you might be a disciple. A disciple is a learner. But there is going to be a cost to it, and you need to consider that before you step out and then have to be like one of these men and turn back. We've had a lot of women over the years that have turned back, that have felt like it was more important to feed their pigs. But it isn't. Discipleship is costly, but it is well, well worth it in the long run. And then our chronology of the Lord's life took us to his next visit into Jerusalem. The last time he had been there, he had cleansed it with the whip. Now he's there to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But before his actual arrival in the Holy City, we found that Jesus was the talk of everyone's conversation. I know you can't read that, but they said, what think ye, that he will not come to the feast? They weren't sure if he would come because they, everybody knew, everybody in Jerusalem knew that the religious leaders were out to kill him. And the religious rulers were asking everybody, have you seen him? Where is he? Because they were going to get him and kill him. And the people debated among themselves regarding his identity. That was, like I said, the talk of the whole place. They were saying, who do you think he is? And some men were saying, well, we think he's a good man. And others were saying, no, but he deceives the people. 
And then he arrived in the middle of the feast, the midst of the feast. And when he arrived, he went straight, where do you think? Straight to the temple, and he began to teach the people. That was usually what he did. And the religious rulers themselves, it told us, marveled over him, wondering how he had such knowledge when he had never been to their rabbinical schools. And then the Lord proceeded to tell them that his teaching was not his, but it was his father's. And he told them that if they had been doing God's will, and if they were truly righteous, then they would know who he was. But instead, what were they trying to do? They were trying to eliminate him. They were trying to kill him. And he knew that, and he told them that. He told them further that the reason they didn't know him was because they didn't know the one who sent him. And he said that point blank. He said they didn't know God. Well, of course, that absolutely infuriated the religious rulers who then proceeded to send out the temple police to arrest him. But after hearing the Lord speak, the temple police went to the temple and they actually started listening to what the Lord was teaching the people. They returned, remember, to the chief priests empty-handed and said to the chief priests, never man spake like this man. I mean, they were afraid to arrest a man who could speak like that. He showed he had supernatural wisdom and power. And that, of course, upset the chief priests even more, and they started to criticize the temple police. And this was the point where Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus? who had come out the first time by night under secret cover, now he stood up in front of all the Sanhedrin and he said in defense of the Lord, um, oh, I've got a picture of him. I said, does our, he said, does our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? And he was willing at this point to put himself up for criticism because they said, what, are you of Galilee also? You know, are you one of his followers? So here we see Nicodemus beginning to emerge as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as we came to John chapter 8, we learned how the scribes and the Pharisees tried to trap the Lord. And I'm going to end with this, this last illustration or this last uh, event how they tried to trap the Lord in an insolvable dilemma when they brought to him a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery. And, of course, we talked about the fact that Deuteronomy 22.22 says that if a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die. And we asked ourselves at that time, where was the man? Not too fair, was it, women? They brought her, but not him, so they were really breaking the law because the law said both of them should be brought forth and killed. But the religious were, rulers were certain. They, had, they probably had even set this up. They had probably trapped the woman purposely, set her up with some guy on purpose so that they could put the Lord in a dilemma from which they thought there was surely no escape because they were presenting him here with the problem of how law and grace can both be satisfied. In other words, the situation of the adulterous woman represented the problem of satisfying both the justice of a holy God and the mercy of a loving God. If Jesus had answered by saying, stone her to death, then the people would have been severely disappointed in him. And the rulers would have then ridiculed the fact that he had said he was a friend of the publicans and the sinners. And the people would have saw, seen no difference in him and their religious rulers because that's their attitude toward people. Just kill them. If they're a sinner, just kill them. So they would have been very disappointed in him and he would have lost his impact with the people. Besides that, he would have been assuming an authority which belonged only to Rome. Remember we talked about when we were discussing all the, the trials the Lord went through? Only Rome had the right to um, initiate the death penalty. So if he had said stoner to death, you know that the Jews would have wasted very little time running to the Roman authorities and having him arrested, and then they would have been rid of him. And on the other hand... If he set the woman free when there was more than one accusing witness, and there were, he would have been a lawbreaker. He would have broken the Mosaic law. 
just to totally set her free, and the Jews themselves would then arrest him. So he seemed to be in a no-win situation. And from the human perspective, this would be a no-win situation. Although human wisdom could never have found an answer to such a dilemma without doing damage to either justice or holiness or love, yet the Lord Jesus had come to earth for the purpose of solving this very dilemma. How could justice and love and mercy be blended? Well, that's the whole reason that he came to earth, was to uphold justice and yet show us what a loving God he is by dying for us and paying the penalty for us for sin. He had devised a way, you see, whereby sinners might be saved from the penalty of their sin. Grace would no longer have to stand helpless before the law because omnipotent wisdom had solved the problem, had already in eternity past figured out how this problem would be solved. So after bending over and then writing something in the sand, which we speculated about what that might be, but you have to get the tape to hear that, he then stood up after he wrote in the sand, then he stood up and remember he looked at each one of the individual accusers of that woman. He looked at them from the eldest to the youngest. And can you imagine that penetrating look? And he said, after he gave them each a, a deep look, he said, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. Look at the looks of horror on their faces. You see, according to the Jewish law, it was the accusers themselves who had to cast the first stone at the one they were accusing. So Jesus was not lowering the standard of the law one jot or one tittle. Rather, he beautifully upheld the law by putting the situation right back on the Jews. He did this over and over again. We'll see this in the next couple weeks, how many times he was able to turn the tables on the Jews. And then he stooped down to write again something on the ground. Again, we don't know what he wrote. But when he finally looked back up, what was the scene? Where were the accusers? They were all gone. The only one who remained standing before him was the adulterous woman herself. And, you know, she, she could have left the scene when the Lord had his head bowed and he was writing in the sand and all the accusers left. She could have slipped away, too. But she didn't. Perhaps she realized that this amazing man was he who could give her the peace and the love and the security that she had not been able to find in any other man. Perhaps she thought, and apparently she did, that she would just throw herself upon his mercy because she now believed that, after all, he might very well be who he claimed to be. And so when he asked her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Do you notice how she answered him? She said, Lord, no man. She called him her Lord, so she obviously believed that he was who he claimed to be. The law could only condemn her to death, but the Lord Jesus, she finally realized, was the one who could give her life. He had not come into the world, you know, to judge the world and to condemn it, but he came so that the world through him might be saved. And so he said to her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. He did not make a single infraction of the law when he set her free from paying its penalty by being stoned to death. Because he alone of all men had the right to offer her grace. Because he alone was going to be condemned in her place. He did not merely dismiss her sin, you see. He would actually die for her sin. Forgiveness is free, but it isn't cheap. Because God himself gave his very life so that he could offer forgiveness for those of us who are sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Father, we thank you that you loved us when we were all adulterous sinners, when we had all turned our backs on you.
and we're flirting and having an affair with the world and with our flesh and with sin and with Satan, but that you loved us while we were yet sinners and you sent your only begotten son so that he might die for our sins so that he could freely forgive us. And Father, we just can't praise and thank you enough for your free pardon, for your grace, for the omnipotent wisdom which which found a solution to the problem of how to blend the law with mercy and grace. Father, how we love you and how we worship you for who you are. We love you. We thank you so much for this time that we've had to just reflect upon the life of your son and the many, many, many deeds that he did while he was on earth, the many ways that he demonstrated to us both by works and by word that he is indeed worthy of our praise and our glory and our honor and our blessing and worthy of our living sacrifices for him. Father, I pray that we would put him as the top priority in our lives, that we would not worship pigs and mammon, but that we would worship him and him alone. Give us, Lord, just an, a wonderful week, a time where we can witness to others, that we can be obedient to sowing that seed and not to worry about those who reject it, but to just rejoice in those who accept it and want to live for you and grow and may we be faithful to help disciple others and lord we just pray that this week we can give glory to you in everything that we do for we love you and we praise you and pray in jesus name